3,000 Californians died by gun violence in 2019, an average of eight people every day. Here at Evidence for Change, we aim to do just that. Use evidence in order to reduce gun violence and save lives. Which brings me to our EFC California representative, Max. So just thank you so much for being here today, Max. I'll go ahead and introduce myself and then I'll pass it off to you. So, so hi everyone, my name is Leah. I am from San Diego, California and my pronouns are she, her. Awesome. Um, yeah, my name is Max Costin. Um, I'm also from San Diego, California. I use he, him pronouns. I'm also the executive director of the San Diego County uh, chapter of March for Our Lives. Amazing. So first of all, um, I'm so glad to have you here today, Max. Max is a passionate activist who I met from the SYI, hosted by the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Prevention and Policy as of 2020, which is crazy because it's already a year um, from today. So today, Max, as he mentioned earlier, is executive director of March for Our Lives San Diego, which is amazing, and founder of their only gun violence rapid response team. So Max, to kickstart our interview, tell us how it is living in the state of California. Really, California is a awesome state besides everything's crazy expensive, but California is an incredible state, especially being born and raised in San Diego. It's pretty awesome to experience the wide diversity of cultures, especially in San Diego. Also, in addition to a wide diversity of cultures, the wide diversity of um, really seasons. You can drive 30 minutes somewhere, it's summer, drive another 30 minutes somewhere else, and it's winter. So it's pretty cool. That's great to hear. And because I'm from San Diego as well, I can definitely relate. Just like going to Julian um, as compared to heading to Del Mar, very mm -hmm. different environments, but um, both really nice. So very fortunate to live here. And kind of with that in mind of growing up in San Diego, um, being San Diego as of now, what is um, a, being a gun violence prevention activist, how has it been in your community? It, it's, it's difficult a lot of the times to, especially the last couple of years after Parkland, um, when I got more involved in 2019, but trying to convince people that gun violence is really an issue in our communities. Um, and especially I live in East County, which is the more conservative um, part of San Diego. And it's really difficult where, where I went to high school. There were people who said that the Parkland shooting was just a liberal conspiracy and that people made that up um and really it's we all know that that's not true um so even having to deal with little things here or there that are oh this didn't happen this was just a bunch of actors that's a really big problem that you have um and after you build that base of members you build that base to make sure you have a large community of activists 
then that's where you can have more of an influence, um, influencing our elected officials and really getting that work done to raise more awareness, but not even just raising awareness, but also going forward and taking community action against gun violence and legislative action, um, which is a really unique opportunity that we have in San Diego County to do. That is amazing that you're able to take that opportunity within San Diego and able to make change through that. So my, my question is kind of how did you, like what was those first steps you took in order to become involved and make these actions and changes? Yeah, so I actually got involved at the, um, I was really a inactive member. I was considered, I signed up for everything and I didn't go to any meetings really um, during the original March for Our Lives in 2018. I went, I signed up, got on my name on all of these lists, got all of these emails. And then after uh, my sophomore year of high school, I decided that this is going on way too much. I, I went to a couple events and then I joined my local Team Enough in March for Our Lives chapter. So those are two separate organizations that I joined. And after a while, taking action with March for Our Lives and Team Enough, I was offered um, the spot to take over as the co-directors that we had at the time. And then from there, pushing forward towards the board of directors structure that we have now to finally get our nonprofit status so we can take more action independent um, from having to go through our state and national every single time we wanted to do something. Um, because unfortunately as a chapter, because we're not, we weren't really a official business structure like our national is, like the state organization is, we weren't able to do that. But when we took those steps, it was really nice to have more of an opportunity to raise money, um, to spend specifically on San Diego actions. Um, an example of that, we had Measure B, which was the Independent Commission on Police Practices, um, which got a overwhelming 75% of city of San Diego voters um, voting yes to get it passed. Um, so that was a huge success. We spent a lot of money um, to work with our community partners because a lot of violence in our communities, not just gun violence, but a lot of violence in general happens from police officers who are sworn to protect and defend the citizens, but they don't actually do that a lot of the times. Um, so being able to increase police accountability um, and call attention there. And that's where gun violence is that intersecting issue to have police accountability, LGBTQIA plus rights, um, more racial justice work. Um, and it, it's just a large spectrum of advocacy that you have to follow. Yeah, I, I really like how you touched on how gun violence really is intersectional, because I think a lot of people miss that um, when having discussions about the movement. So kind of with that, I would, what do you think is the importance of recognizing that gun violence is intersectional and is affecting other um, communities? So yeah, it, it's really important that we need to acknowledge that because first of all, as advocates, a lot of the time, especially 
if you take advocates that don't have experience, um, that don't have those friends or family members who have experienced gun violence in their communities, um, or taking socioeconomic status also into consideration, um, you have to understand that there's different types of gun violence. There's the community gun violence, there's really mass casualty um, incidents with school shootings and other incidents like that that are more of a um, also I'd say like a fringe group type activity that you have sometimes. Um, so with these various types of gun violence that we see in our communities, we have to acknowledge that there's different people who are affected by those. Um, and as we see in communities of color, that's normally where some types of community gun violence is very affluent. And it's really important because what law enforcement has done the past hundred plus years is just over-police those communities. And we don't want to over-police those communities. Something we need to do instead is to include those communities in the narrative to actually take action. So it's important to acknowledge this because if we don't do that, then we're not gonna include them. We're not including them. What happens after that? Then we have a whole nother over-policing communities and we have a bigger issue that arises from us trying to take action to prevent another issue. I 100% agree. And um, like with that, what are like the certain steps or actions that you have taken at March for Our Lives, which I know you've mentioned a little earlier, but if you could elaborate a little bit on some steps or actions you've taken at March for Our Lives San Diego mm -hmm. that um, deal with the over-policing and tackling that like into the intersectional um, gun violence. Yeah, so I do actually want to, that is a great question just to start off there. Um, but the main actions that we have taken, um, well, first of all, I just want to say how the amount of diversity we have um, on our board of directors on both socioeconomic status on, um, we have representation of various groups of color um, and various communities across San Diego as San Diego County is the fifth largest county across the country that we have various representation from different areas inside the county. Um, we also pride ourselves in the partnerships that we've established. Um, when we really revived the chapter about a year ago, um, and that's with, I'd like to just bring up Generation Justice San Diego. It's a youth organization um, that's primarily youth of color that take action against injustices in their community um, and across San Diego County. Um, we have Shafa Outreach, they're a violence intervention and prevention group um, that their job, what they do is to intervene to the youth who are actively involved in gang or other types of violence um, and help them to make some change um, through educational classes, getting them off the streets and taking part of other activities um, 
And really from there, that ends the cycle of violence uh, and incarceration in our communities and more of that hands-on approach, which is incredible versus just arresting them, putting them in jail. And that's not a... So that's one big part of working with those communities, working with those groups specifically. Um, and I actually, now that I bring that up, um, I do want to mention, we do have a press conference with an organization, a partner organization tomorrow um, about the season of peace that some of our partners and that we've joined them in calling for. So during the seasons, so as we're in summer, calling for a season of peace to ask everyone to put down the weapons and really have conversations with each other, communicate with each other. Um, and that's where trying to prevent that violence, that's where we get a lot of work done to educate people about gun violence specifically um, and get guns off the streets um, in ways that don't incriminate people um, or incarcerate them. So then they can keep moving on with their lives. They can have a good life versus getting arrested and locked up and incarcerated. Um, and it's a really big um, struggle sometimes, but with community organizations all working together, um, we're able to get a lot of work done. And especially um, we're thankful that we have support from a lot of our communities across San Diego County for those programs. For, first of all, that is some amazing work, Max. So I applaud you for that. And with that um, kind of community organization, like how did you get March for Our Lives and all these amazing initiatives to come together in San Diego? Yeah, so after the Parkland shooting, a lot of organizations got together, a lot of people got together. Um, we saw March for Our Lives in general being founded. Um, and from there, we just, I wasn't actually part of a lot of that um, organizing in the very beginning. Um, but from there, they organized the March for Our Lives that we had in 2018. And as you know, the March for Our Lives across the country, especially the March for Our Lives in DC was the largest march that we had seen. Um, followed by the Women's March after Trump's inauguration. Um, so really being able to organize people, that was a big help with our different community organizations. Um, the Women's March San Diego, they were a big help to us um, when March for Our Lives San Diego was originally planning that march. And it helped us so much to be able to have adults helping out. Um, and that's another area that we realized that we need to have more adult assistance, we need to have more, we need to work with our adult um, audience a lot more because that's where a lot of outreach 
comes into play. That's where we get connected with the influential lawmakers um, that we have connections with now that we get to meet with sometimes um, and where we do have that means to influence different types of legislation um, and get that done. So really after the march, we had planning that march so after the march we did unfortunately lose a lot of people but we did have that base that was able to keep holding events um and then a couple months before covid started the chapter started dwindling down a little bit and then um towards the middle of covid that's where uh, we were able to bring the chapter back and keep holding some events um where we were able to meet with Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs, who was the youngest um, congressperson in her, in California, first of all, the youngest congresswoman in her freshman class um, of congressional representatives and the second youngest congresswoman in the um, United States House of Representatives, who, as we know, the youngest is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, but getting to meet with her, with Representative Scott Peters, um, and to talk about gun violence prevention, we had that live uh, live streamed event. Um, getting to meet with Sandy and Lonnie Phillips from Survivors Empowered, um, and work with them, and basically continuing those relationships and establishing them. And it really helps so much to have those adults who were able to introduce us to people. Um, so yeah, it, it's really a, it's a process and things change every month, things change every day, honestly, towards our organizing strategies because as young people, we can't do everything. We are in school, most of us are, yeah. In high school or in college, we have a couple students who are in middle school. We have to go to school. We can't spend our whole entire day, unfortunately, advocating for gun violence prevention. We wish we could, but it's just not something we can do. Um, so really being able to balance out how we can get people involved, but not too much where it's affecting negatively affecting their um, school work or different things like that. So making sure that there are other avenues to get involved for people who don't have much time to get involved. From there, also trying to fundraise, but also there are people who financially can't contribute. So trying to find other ways to fundraise, trying to seek out grants, uh, because unfortunately, and a lot of other gun violence prevention organizations and general social justice oriented organizations. Sadly, we all can't operate without adequate funding. Um, and that's just a fact of life that we have to deal with because without adequate funding, we can't have our different programs that we need. We can't even little things as printing buttons, um, ordering those that or getting banners printed. Those are actually really expensive. So we have to fundraise a lot, a lot, a lot. And um, 
it's difficult as a youth organization to be without, we don't have people who, oh, I've spent 20 years in fundraising and I can easily raise a million dollars or whatever in a day or something like that. Um, we don't have those types of people, but we have to work with what we have. So trying to get family involved, do other type of fundraisers, um, just it's, it's really difficult. Um, and I'd say that is the most challenging part I've had experienced in activism with an organization like this. And as because as the executive director, it's very difficult to realistically schedule our projects of, first of all, of the timing of the getting, making sure we have enough people to run our projects, but not even that, making sure we have enough money to make sure that we have a project continue, but then also our operations budget to make sure that we can pay for um, our emails. That's a big thing that we have. Make sure that we have paying for our Zoom accounts um, and different things like that, that we need just to operate that are really important. It's a struggle every day. So, and it's something that we really need to take a look at every other week um, and change things around, um, especially during COVID when people aren't um, at a area where they can um, financially give to organizations like ours. And as we're going to an end of COVID, where people are getting back into school, um, having normal events that they used to have come back, so they don't have as much time to spend to contribute to our organization also. And within that realm of COVID, which you kind of touched on, how have you been able to adapt to like this ever-changing environment um, and like with online and offline? Yeah, so... The idea with COVID as that really developed and we realized, okay, we're not going to be closed for two weeks. This is like a year and a half long thing. We realized after a while that we needed to make adjustments. We needed to adapt. The main thing was having a virtual office instead of going and meeting at a public library somewhere to have our meetings or different things like that we have a virtual office now through Zoom. So we can have a Zoom meeting and everyone get together to meet. Um, and it first of all, saves a lot of people's time, saves money on gas because San Diego County is so large. There's some people that have to drive an hour or even more than that to get to a central meeting spot to have a general chapter meeting. Um, so it worked out perfectly to have these meetings over Zoom. Um, and then even from there, having to realize that burnout and mental health was a big aspect that we needed to keep track of because we weren't going to school. We didn't have these other things in our lives that were keeping us busy that wasn't just our activism work. So there's higher tendencies for our activists to burn out. And unfortunately, we did lose a couple activists from our organization who had to leave because they burned out. So from there, we had to really take note of student mental health. Um, and as young people 
the many struggles that young people experience, um, how we can help each other as, as a whole group together, how we can help each other to overcome some of these struggles that we were experiencing. Um, and from there, even just COVID, losing family members from COVID, um, that was a big struggle as well. And um, I would first like to applaud you on being able to have those like open discussions about mental health since, you know, these are real things. These are real issues that are impacting our youth. So mm -hmm. just like with that, because you touch on so many issues like mental health and um, intersectionality within gun violence, what made you um, educated on these issues and how or what advice do you have for other students or youth that want to be educated on these issues as well? General education on these issues, it was difficult because there isn't and really the legislature was barring the federal government to conduct um, conclusive research on gun violence. We had to rely, you have to look at different colleges and you have these giant studies that they come up with. And as young people reading through, whoa, this is a lot like how it's difficult to understand a lot of those things um, and trying to really go through and understand these different terms that are being thrown around. Uh, so it was really difficult. Um, and then I came across the Johns Hopkins um, Evidence for Change um, online course, took that, that was a big help. Um, and breaking it down, all of the evidence, the data um, that really explains what the problem is and what the evidence-based solutions are. Um, taking evidence-based solutions from other people um, and organizations. However, unfortunately, um, I relied too much on that because it was difficult to see that th having those evidence-based solutions in different areas, in different cities, different states, but every single city is a totally different area that you have to work with. You can't rely on the same approach to prevent gun violence in every city, especially when you get into more logistical locality-based areas where you have municipalities that are, first of all, structured differently. So there are approaches that you literally cannot take because legally it's there, you can't. You have state preemption laws so that prevent um, local governments from passing an ordinance or passing a law that would take action against a certain aspect of gun violence. And then on top of that, we're young people. So the big problem is having people just especially adults tell you, oh, you're, you're a young person, you can't do anything, you're a kid. It, it's not like you can make any change. Um, and I mean, boy, did we prove them wrong. So the advice and what I'm getting at here is that you're gonna come across in ad advocacy, you're gonna come across so many different struggles and at every single turn, you're gonna wanna just give up, but you have to push yourself through it. Um, take time away, come back to the problem, 
don't go through it yourself, bring other people into it. Make sure that there's enough people to think through a problem, to come up with a solution. In addition to that, don't try and solve every problem by yourself. As an or if you have an organization and you come across a problem, don't as an organization just try and solve it. Bring in other people. Bring in ask ask people for help if you have those people. And that's a really big thing. Getting advice from people, asking them for help. And as young people, we can't do everything. It is as difficult as it is sometimes that we don't want to do. We have to ask people who have more experience than us and that are older than us. And because of that, they have more experience. We have to ask them for help. Um, and don't be afraid to do that. that. That makes you a stronger advocate. That is some great advice, Max. And kind of elaborating on that, a lot of what you brought up recently has to deal with um, inclusivity. So mm -hmm. my question really is just, how do you make sure that you have that inclusivity within your workspace in March for Our Lives? Yeah, so a lot of people think, oh, inclusivity, okay, I'm inclusive, there, that's the solution. But it, it, it's a whole other fight. Um, of personal biases that you might not even know you have, um, having to address those um, and realize that everything relies around inclusivity, not just inclusivity based on um, race, but inclusivity on age, inclusivity on sexual orientation, gender identity, inclusivity on time management, whether or not someone has enough time to help you out. Um, and really being able to be malleable, be adaptable, make sure you can adjust things as you go. And that is the real struggle and the real reward. It's difficult because there are so many things that have to change sometimes in order to be more inclusive. You have to rework everything. Even if you think you're inclusive already, the chances are you're not. And there's things that you should probably change. So when you have that, you have to make sure to tell yourself it's okay to change things. It's okay to not be perfect. It's okay to make these alterations to what we're doing. And then on top of that, it's okay to sit down and have that conversation about how we can be more inclusive. Uh, that first step towards making yourself more inclusive, open up your mind, sit down, and have those conversations and take everything that someone says to your heart. If you don't do that, then you're not gonna be able to make any change or make any efforts to be more inclusive as an organization or as a person. Absolutely. And one thing really important I think that you brought up was having these conversations and I know like oftentimes, especially from personal experience, it can be really difficult having these conversations mm -hmm. about inclusivity and diversity. Exactly. So 
Right. And just with that, like, do you have any advice or tips on how to make these conversations like a safe and open space? Mm -hmm. Um, So something that we'll do every once in a while, we'll dedicate some of our general meetings to how we can be more inclusivity, how we can change things. Um, And it's not a general, hey, how can we be more inclusive? Not just saying that, but it's what can we change to make you more comfortable in this organization? What can we do as a group to make each other more comfortable? What can, as an individual, we do to make sure that we can work together, that there isn't any drama, really, that results from lack of inclusivity? And to acknowledge that we are all works in progress and making sure it's okay to call each other out really if we're not being that inclusive. Not in a rude way, but in a way to bring it up and say, hey, we need to be, we need to work on this a little bit. We need to be a little bit more inclusive. Um, hey, I just realized that just, that seemed kind of weird, that interaction you had with this person. Um, maybe we can work on that a little bit. Hey, um, I just wanted to see, are you saying this because of one thing or are you saying this just because of a totally opposite reason? Um, and really elaborating and asking those follow-up questions and being able to say, hey, the way you treated me earlier, that didn't seem, it kind of, it seemed on the borderline of discrimination. It kind of seemed like you weren't being as inclusive. And just saying that, because if you do that, chances are someone's going to make a change and acknowledge it. And of course you have people who don't want to be inclusive at all. They don't want to change anything. They don't want to be flexible at all. And from there, sometimes you just have to ask them kindly to leave. And if you if they can't work in a whole group together and they can't be inclusive, then we can't get our work done that we want to do because we have to pay attention to inclusivity every day while we're getting our work done. So if they can't be inclusive towards the group, then they can't be inclusive towards our community. I think you... You, you address that perfectly. And just with that inclusivity, I really liked how you mentioned how inclusivity is everything. It's important because it includes everyone. So kind of with March for Our Lives, is there a specific time you think that inclusivity became like a really important part of discussion or has it always been like within, the, within March for Our Lives? March for Our Lives in our local chapter, I mean, I'd like to say we have been very inclusive. Um, But of course, we have had different things we've needed to work on here and there. Um, And expanding some of our work even um, to be more inclusive because of the intersectionalities that gun violence prevention has. Um, But as a national organization, I think we we started having more of those conversations at the beginning of COVID. Um, realizing as a lot of social issues 
became more spoken about. Um, and as young people realizing these issues are a lot more important than we originally thought they were. Um, and as young people sitting down and having those conversations um, during the, um, after George Floyd was murdered, having that conversation of the bias, um, bias policing that people have seen. Um, and as someone, as a person of color, but I pass as white, I don't have those experiences that many other people have. Um, so being able to sit down and talk through people, um, and be vulnerable, um, and that's like the big key to inclusivity. You need to be vulnerable. Um, so being able to open these spaces to talk about different struggles we've had as individuals, um, and realizing that some of these struggles we've all had together, we've all experienced experienced similar things at different points. So it is in everyone's best interest to work to prevent anything like this happening in the future, to get together and include this as violence prevention. Because as a firearm wasn't used in the murder of George Floyd, you look at the murder of Breonna Taylor, they shot her. And Unfortunately, this happened way too often in our country, and it's a big part of gun violence. Um, and it's a big part of gun violence that we can actually work as people, as an organization, as a community to change. Because policing, changes in policing, isn't a federal issue, even though there are federal regulations that need to be set. But the budgeting of um, police forces and operations of police forces, protocols, those are all set mainly on the city and county level. So we as community members in these cities, in these counties, we have a unique opportunity to make change on all areas inside our cities, especially people who live in smaller cities. In the city or in the county of San Diego, there are 18 different cities, 18. So there's so many different approaches and taking, making this change, even at one city still makes a significant change. The city of San Diego implementing changes in the city of San Diego, it also makes a difference for every other city in the county. Because many people go into downtown San Diego, many people go into San Diego all the time, and they drive through San Diego for something. But when you're driving through, there's that possibility that you got pulled over and harassed by a law enforcement officer. Mm -hmm. So being able to make those changes, not even inside your own city, but in a neighboring city, especially with counties that are as large as ours those make a really big difference and that's where working together is a factor and working together between different community organizations across different local cities inside the county definitely and something you kind of mentioned with george floyd and brianna taylor is the impact of it being publicized because these aren't new issues but only different exactly 
Yeah, it's it's being covered on media now. Mm-hmm. So with March for Our Lives and like March for Our Lives San Diego, how do you think media has not only impacted your movement, but like how does March for Our Lives utilize um, media as well? Mm-hmm. So it's more true that I think I've realized during our organization's work that the media, the news isn't about the truth. It's about the story that they can tell. Mm-hmm. It's about what story they can tell that they can get more clicks, get more likes off of. And that's something that you really have to realize as you're going into any work, that something you say might be changed by the media. Um, And as young people, we try and be very direct to people a lot of the time. And sometimes we aren't as prepared, let's say, or we don't, uh, we're nervous and everyone gets those nerves. We stutter a little bit here or there and that's okay. We really need to realize that things like that is okay when we're talking to media, but they're going to find a way some points. Um, and even if it doesn't happen, it's going to happen at one point when you're working with the media, if you do it multiple times, that they're not going to, they're going to mischaracterize something you say or something your organization is fighting for. So that's where, in addition to speaking to the media, using social media, mm-hmm. social media is a important perspective, not just to get people involved, but to share your mission and tell your story as it is. Um, and that's where you really need to utilize social media to tell your story, to speak out as yourself, being your unique organization, being your unique self, to make sure that you spread the word from your mouth. Because when it comes from other people, it's it's a game of telephone. Of you say something to someone else, it's going to come out differently to another person. Um, because we are humans. We don't, you're, if you were to tell me a story, I wouldn't be able to recite it word for word. I might get a couple things wrong if I were to go tell someone else. Um, so it's, that's why you have to tell your story from your perspective, telling it from your organization's perspective, because a lot of the times, if you work with media, you may have mischaracterizations that need to be addressed. In addition to that, I'm not saying media is, you shouldn't work with the media. Media, especially televised media, is a crucial part towards our work because that's where you can reach a large amount of people pretty much for free besides the cost of gas driving to a TV interview or something. Um, And with our events, we realized that televising it more um, and advertising with local media is really important to do. And something that we're lucky, we have local news outlets that really, really want to cover our the issues of gun violence in our communities um, and will take the time to listen. Um, but that doesn't happen all the time. You need to try multiple times and even if it doesn't work the first time you need to keep going keep going and keep 
pushing your local news outlets to get on air and talk about issues that are affecting your community. I think that's great. Just like recognizing how media coverage definitely has both its benefits, but also its, um, its issues as well. So mm -hmm. you, as a youth activist, you obviously you have a lot of experience as a youth activist. And with that, recognizing how it does have its ups and downs, what is your advice for youth activists or people who want to get involved with activism and how they can kind of find that balance? Yeah, so that balance isn't something that I can just say, this is the balance. The balance is something that is different for everyone. And just to understand that the first organization that you join isn't the organization that you'll stay with most likely. Mm. Get your feet out in the water, experience different areas of advocacy and see what calls your attention a lot more. What calls your attention the most? and try and get involved in those areas. But then also realizing sometimes there isn't as much that you can do in certain avenues. So where can I as an individual make the most change with a organization? And with a group of five people compared to a group of 30 people, those two groups can make an equal amount of change and a lot of people think numbers, we need a lot of people, that's how we make change. No, you need to be outspoken. You need to be educated. So educate yourself on these issues. Always educate yourself on issues. Even if you think you know what something is, make sure you go back and just confirm, you go back and do more research on a topic and pay attention to local news, write things down because you, something's gonna pop into your head and then you're gonna forget it. And then a month later, gonna try and figure out what it was and it's gonna be very difficult. So write things down, make notes um, and really rely on each other for help. Um, if you think you're burning out, have conversations with other activists around you on what they did, get some tips from each other um, on what they did and what you can do um, but what if they tell you what they did to help prevent burnout and to get more involved, that's not going to work specifically for you. So it it's like I said earlier, we're all works in progress, and that's all that's never going to change. We're always going to be a work in progress. So acknowledging that and adjusting yourself, making changes as you go, because that's really how you become the most efficient as an advocate is being able to adjust your approaches as need be. Absolutely. And with that, kind of going back to um, how we were touching on media earlier, I know that March for Our Lives has a really big media presence. And with that presence, I know um, among social media, especially recently, um, there's kind of this, I guess, kind of issue of performative activism versus actual activism. So what is your kind of thoughts or opinions on that? Yeah, so of course, for people who can't 
do that much to help a movement and just reposting what they're posting. That's awesome. Yeah. But for everyone else who really wants to be involved and really call themselves an activist, in addition to reposting things, make sure even as little as calling your representatives, your congressional representative, your city council representative, the mayor's office, and letting them know you support something. Mm -hmm. Sending your representative an email, um, signing a petition. Those are all actions you can take. Go to a protest, go to a march, um, go to a press conference with someone. take part in events and really because performative activism is where you do it just to get the clout mainly it's you're putting on a performance for other people and the second you do that is the second you undermine um the work that we're doing and performative activists especially the way that without follow through that's how you undermine the work that we're doing and really we need to keep moving forward so performative activism puts us back and uh, unfortunately performative activism has been becoming an increased issue along um, different activists And during COVID, it was understandable that people couldn't go out and protest because there were family health concerns, different things like that. But you don't need to just go to a protest. There's so many other things you can do. So many other actions you can take that take five to 10 minutes of your day. You can spend an hour of your week, 30 minutes of your week making calls for uh, organization to raise awareness about an issue. You can, if you don't want to make those calls, literally sit down with your friends, with your family and have those conversations. And once you do that, you realize that there's more to just posting on social media. There's more to all of these different things. And of course, we're not saying go out and spend your whole life, um, spend, go 24 seven, protesting, go 24-7, marching, go 24-7, making calls for an organization. No, but spend some extra time if you can. Do what you can in your capacity to contribute to a movement that isn't just pressing reshare or posting something to your story, pressing retweet. Because just doing that makes a difference, but the difference that you could make making a call or attending an event that extra one body attending an event has a more of an exponential effect towards change than pressing retweet ever can yeah i think you address that perfectly and just with that with those um steps of going beyond that repost or that retweet, um, you know, at the Institute, we learned a lot about the importance of implementing evidence in activism. So Mm -hmm. within March for Our Lives, have um, statistics or evidence, um, how have you used that towards the cause and through your organization? 
Yeah, so you do have to have a balance between using statistics um, and other evidence versus the morality behind something. Because sometimes you, if you use too many statistics, you just make someone a statistic. You don't want to make, these are actually people whose lives are being affected. You don't want to make them just be a statistic and a number that you talk about. So realizing not even just using statistics, yes, that is important, but also using stories of people, using experiences that people have, that makes a tremendous change. If you combine them all together, that makes a way better change that you can do with any of those. So that combination, that balance between using evidence and statistics, using the story of someone's experiences, and then really just catering towards what needs to be done and what the community needs with including community representation. So that is another area that is really important that a lot of people don't realize is actually that important, but community representation is the most important part. No statistic, no story can be as powerful as saying that you have your whole community behind you in support of something. No story, no statistic can be as powerful as having a whole community of people in support of something. Because it all comes back to the numbers of the people that the people have influence, the people elect, the lawmakers, the representatives that make the really final decisions in a lot of areas. So if we have those people, then that's when our lawmakers start paying attention. When the voters get involved, when we threaten them with getting placed by someone who is going to represent the voters better, then that's where people will actually listen to you. And realizing that, yeah, we are kids, but we can still make even more of a change than an adult can. And if we use the right um, approaches, we can make more change than a lot of other people in the past have. And it's really something we always have to strive to is keep pushing for change. There's always more that can be done, but always take care of yourself, take time, celebrate your victories. But as you're celebrating, remember that we're taking time to celebrate right now, but we still need to do more. We still have more work to be done. I strongly agree. And I really like how you mentioned the impact of community because the impact community has is amazing. So thank you for mentioning that. And just kind of, this is kind of my last question, but to your fellow students in California or in San Diego, what community or state actions can they take right now or you encourage them to take right now? Um, well, the easiest thing you can do, go to mflsandiego.com. Right as you go to that website, 
join our teams. Go to info. Um, or no, go to take action. Join our chapter. And put your information down to join us because we need power in numbers. And especially as big as San Diego County is, we really need all of your voices involved to make change and to take action to make sure that the next generation and the generations after that won't have to go through the struggles that we had with duck and cover active shooter drills. Um, and when a fire alarm gets pulled or when you do a fire drill, having to lock yourself inside your classroom, waiting for the campus to be secured in order for you to evacuate. So making sure that these future generations don't have the same struggles we have. There's going to be similar issues, but making sure that we make some significant changes so there is a better future for the generations to come. That is the most important thing we can ever do as activists and that'll adjust and affect our communities in the years to come. Um, and even though they may not remember, there's still change that was made. Even though the media might not talk about us that much, we still have made significant change. So something you can go and do, go to our website, mfwellsandiego.com, and you can join us if you're in San Diego. You can join a March for Our Lives chapter, join another gun violence prevention organization in your community and take action. If you can't do that, you can join us, spend some time volunteering, go to our events. Um, and I do wanna say before we end this um, interview, that March for Our Lives San Diego is actually very happy to announce that we will be holding a March for Our Lives 2022. So that is something to look forward to. Um, and to march through the streets demanding that people take action. But in addition to that, working with our legislators, working with our community, working with the city, working with the county to make significant changes across the county to make sure that we have a better future. That is some amazing and beautiful work, Max. And I am definitely looking forward to that March for Our Lives San Diego 2022. I will definitely be there. So just to conclude the interview, um, thank you so much for joining us, Max, today as the California Evidence for Change representative. At the end of the day, we are all youth and our goal is to ignite change within our communities, state, and together nationwide. Because one state at a time, we can and we will reduce gun violence in America. Thank you, Max. Thank you.